Recorded live from Winterfell Studios in Portland, Oregon, this is WPR, Westeros Public Radio. From the princes of Dorne to the kings in the north, we bring you the latest and greatest in Westeros. Ah. Eight days a week. Hey, small folk. Hello and welcome to another edition of WPR, Westeros Public Radio. I am your host, Lynn the Jazzman Thunder, joined today, as I am every day, by your Lord of the Soundboard, the fearless and courageous John Bryant. Valamagoulis, Lynn Thunder. Fucking A, Valamagoulis. Everyone's dead, John Bryant. <laughs> it does seem to be going that way this year. <laughs> well, small folk, we are brought to you usually by a grant from the Joffrey Foundation, but recent events have made us have a change of heart. I'm sure you might be aware that there was a big man out there who had a bigger heart. He did have a big heart. Big heart. Big He's, his name was Willis, but he lives on in our hearts as Hodor. And so we are now brought to you by a grant from the Hodor Memorial Foundation. Hodor. It's all right, Hodor. Still pretty shook up by that, John Bryant. Yeah, that was uh, that was a heartbreaker. Uh, one of the more powerful moments for that show, definitely. Definitely. Uh, and small folk, just got to put a little plug in there. Be sure to visit our website, winterfellstudios.podbean.com, and enter our logo contest, because our logo still sucks. Yeah, we need a really good logo, 1,400 by 1,400 pixels. Come on, guys. It's the least you can do. Someone's got to know how to use Photoshop out there. Do it for Hodor. <laughs> Well, John Bryant, what do we have on the program today? Take a look at uh, current events in Westeros, specifically King's Landing. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit of Wars of the Roses, and we have top five death scenes. In the show so far. Yes. A lot of deaths to choose from. This was a tough top five. Plethora of deaths to choose from. Um, it was a tough top five, but I think I've got a really good list. All right. We'll, we'll see. But first, the news. From <laughs> the Ravens here. Let me get the scroll off his leg really quick. All right, and here's the scroll. All right, there you go. From King's Landing, I'm Lynn the Jazzman Thunder. In the Iron Islands, the brother of the deceased King of the Ironborn, Urin Greyjoy, is declared King of the Ironborn at the King's Moot. The two surviving children of the deceased Balon Greyjoy, Yara and Theon, have fled. Their whereabouts are currently unknown. In King's Landing, the long-running standoff between the Faith and the House Tyrell and the throne seemed to have broken, after King Tolman and Queen Marjorie declare an alliance with the High Sparrow. Former Kingsguard Jaime Lannister is dismissed and has been sent north. Across the Narrow Sea, reports have reached us that Daenerys Stormborn has been found leading the Dothraki nation, once a divided people, but now united under her leadership. Her plans for the Dothraki remain unknown. And that's the news, John Bryant. Scary to think of that Dothraki horde coming on over here to Westeros. We'll see. They've never crossed the saltwater. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to guess they stay over there. Yeah, probably. And no It'd way be they, for the best. No way they come over here to Westeros with us. That would just be crazy. <laughs> All right, Lynn Thunder. Um, I got a quick question for you about the goings-on of Westeros. Lay it on me. Should we go to Westeros first? No, we're going to ask the question, then we'll go to Westeros. Okay. We're going to switch it up a little bit. All right. How does 
King Tom, Tommen Baratheon's connection with the faith affect the people of King's Landing? Time for a little analysis. Let, let's go to Westeros and discuss. To Westeros. <laughs> Come, bow before your king. Bow, your shits. <laughs> it's a shame the throne is made of cocks. They'd have never got him off it. Okay, small folk. A little bit of news analysis for you here to help you understand what's going on in your neck of the woods. The question today, what does the alliance between King Tolman and the High Sparrow mean for you out there in Westeros? Well, personally, it robbed me of a chance to see uh, Marjorie Tyrell's Walk of Atonement. Yeah, yeah. Was well, kind of looking. Forward to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe, maybe we'll maybe we'll see something else. Well, it's it is weird because you could tell by what Jamie and Cersei and even uh, the Queen of Thorns thought it was not a good thing that Tommen has now allied himself with uh, the High Sparrow. I think the biggest question for us now is clearly uh, Tolman, simple and timorous, like maybe someone else we've heard about. Mm -hmm. And who is going to control him now? It was Queen Cersei. Then it was Queen Marjorie. Then it appeared that it was going to be Tywin. But maybe now it'll be the High Sparrow. Yeah. And is it going to be? Uh, I mean, and another person to throw out there is Kevin Lannister, who's yeah. the hand of the king now. Exactly. So he's going to be get pulled in a lot of different ways. Is he going to survive that? Yeah, one of the things that I kind of noticed is that it seemed like it was more Marjorie that pulled him into the faith than um, the High Sparrow. You know, I I would go anywhere that Marjorie pulled me, so I can't that's I can't true. fault him for that. Yeah, that's a good, very good point. I don't know. It's just is I think it's probably going to be a good thing for the common folks and not a good thing for the highborn. And hey, for you small folk out there, that's not a bad thing. No, it's not, really, because, I mean, Marjorie broke it down saying that she did a good job of appearing to be a good person, and now she's going to actually try to be a good person, and having a good person as a queen, that's that usually tends bodes well for the small folk, and Tommen's not a bad guy. Well, it, but here's one problem, though, why it might not bode well for the small folk. Okay. The nobles, the high lords are going to be unhappy, Yeah. and when they're unhappy, people tend, tend to start dying. That's true. Wars. Wars happen, and then yeah. lots of small folk die. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, so I think our next question has to be, what is the High Sparrow's plan? Because he clearly has the upper hand now in terms of controlling King Tommen. Mm -hmm. He controls Queen Marjorie, and Queen Marjorie definitely controls King Tommen. Yeah. Uh, so what is the High Sparrow's plan? Well, if he's smart, his pl number one plan should be, how do I completely take Cersei Lannister out of this situation? And he started by removing Jamie Lannister from the equation. I mean, did he? Do, yeah, I guess did he do that? Because Kevin it, wasn't too happy with Jamie Lannister either. It definitely wasn't Tolman's idea. I think that's a high sparrow move. Because remember, Jamie had kind of threatened him there in the Sept of Baylor, saying, "Look, I'm going to kill you." Yeah. And high sparrow's thinking, mm, maybe you better get out of town. Yeah, and well, I guess he accomplished that. Jamie's going to the Riverlands. That's right. To get back the Tully's castle, River Run. Mm-hmm. That the Blackfish occupied. Ah, oh, the Blackfish. As I called in our predictions episode and you balked at. Well, hey, <laughs> I think you're one for five at this point. When I'm like three for five. I don't know, man. LSH, is that plot line's coming a lot closer. We saw some phrase this week, too. Could be, could be. I don't know. We'll see. 
Yeah. Anyway, back to the matter at hand. Yeah. What does the High Sparrow want? I'll tell you what I think the High Sparrow wants, John Bryant. Okay. I think he wants to supplant the king entirely and run like a theocracy. He wants to turn Westeros from a kingdom into a theocracy. Mm. You know? All of a sudden, the most important, most powerful person in the land isn't the king anymore. It's not the hand of the king. It's not some rich noble. It's whoever is in charge of the faith. Whoever's closest to the gods. We all know the High Sparrow. He does a good job at appearing to be good. Yes, he does. Uh, he talks a good game. He walks a good walk. But I think he's got a bigger bigger fish in mind. Yeah. Well, and we'll find out soon what his next step is because uh, Cersei Lannister has her trial by combat coming up. Or That's trial right. coming up. We assume it's going to be a trial by combat. Well, she said it's going to be. And who's going to stand for the faith? That's a good question. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, we'll have to see. And uh, another thing that kind of brings uh, this whole thing uh, full circle is there's a new religious authority in Marine. That's right. The Red Priestess. Another Red Priestess, anyway. Not not our old uh, Gilf Melisandre. Yeah. <laughs> another Red Priestess has shown up in Marine, and she's agreed to lend some legitimacy to Daenerys, tell people to worship Daenerys. Yeah, I thought that was really creepy, that part where... Uh, so Tyrion's kind of being really polite to her and inviting her into the fold. and Very diplomatic. And Varys kind of shows his teeth a bit and says, you know, there was another priest, or a yeah, priestess who called someone the Relora High, and it was Stannis, and that didn't end so well for him. And then she just kind of blows his mind with some shocking information that no one else should know, especially her. Right. About the day he was mutilated. Someone who's never met him before. Yeah, and he gives that, like, I don't know if you noticed the actor did such a great job. He did this look that I've only ever seen in my dog when I like, yell at him, <laughs> no. And he just, like, Barry's had that look down to a T when she started telling Very him confused. about his past. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of, lot of uh, faith questions going on in uh, the politics of Westeros and Essos. Yeah, you know, so far the Red Faith has been kind of a question mark because we've seen a few different representatives, uh, two that we are very well acquainted with, Melisandre and Thoros Amir. Yep. Kind of polar opposites, really. Yeah. Melisandre, very calculating, very cunning, uh, very a schemer. Mm-hmm. And Thoros... Very just, faithful to her religion. Yeah, and Thoros kind of being a, a little bit of the opposite of that. Yeah. And we'll see what really the Faith has in mind. I mean... Are they one monolithic body with some high guy up there controlling everything with a plan? Or are they just more dispersed and running around doing their own things? Hmm. We'll have to see what uh, the fate of Westeros has for us. That's right. Uh, Clearly, the faith of the Seven under the control of the High Sparrow. Yeah. Yeah. So, and maybe we'll we'll run into a conflict with them. Because once Daenerys comes back with the uh, faith of the Red God, uh, the High Sparrow ain't going to be too pleased with that. No, he will not. But I have a feeling the High Sparrow will not be around that long. Yeah. I don't think he'll be around long enough to see Daenerys and her dragon show up in King's Landing. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Yep. So that, that's the analysis, small folk. All right, should we get into our top five? Top five. This is Westeros Public Radio with Lynn the Jazzman Thunder. I am the god of jits and wine. And John Bryant. I vomited on a girl once in the middle of the act, not proud of it. Bringing you the latest and greatest from Westeros. The time is 6.35. Valyrian Standard. Okay, John Bryant, what is our top five list today? We got top five deaths 
into HBO's Game of Thrones. And boy howdy, what a list to choose from. I, I had a tough time narrowing it down to five. There's been a whole lot of, just this season we've got five pretty good ones, I think. Yeah, uh, clearly a lot to choose from. I have s- several honorable mentions that I had to put on because I just I couldn't leave them off. That's good. That's good. I like those. So, John Bryant, let's start at the bottom. As always, I haven't seen your list. You haven't seen my list. We're going to see who's right and who's wrong. Let's do it. Okay. Who is your number five top five death? You sure you don't want to go first? All right, I'll go first. My number five top five death. This character is not so much important as what he gives to us. His name is Vardis Egan, Sir Vardis Egan. Do you remember how and where, when he died, the circumstances? I'm, I'm drawing a blank. He was killed in Tyrion's first trial by combat by Bronn ah, of the Blackwater. Okay. He wasn't Bronn of the Blackwater then. In the Eyrie. Right next, well, he kind of got thrown out the moon door after he got stabbed in the throat. Right. So the, the important part is that if Bronn hadn't killed him then, we would never have had Bronn in the show. Well, we would have had very little Bronn. And we wouldn't have had Tyrion. Or very That's little true. Tyrion. Yeah, that too. So, Vardis Egan, he's my number five death just because his death gave us so much. That's right. Thank you for dying for our entertainment, Sir Vardis. Yes, you dumb, dumb idiot. <laughs> and your giant fancy suit of armor and your shitty sword and your giant shield. Yeah, what a jackass. <laughs> All right. My number five, uh, not quite as obscure, Viserys Targaryen. Okay, that was a good one. That was a good one. I'll tell you why. Because his crown of gold, what an ironic way to die. <laughs> yeah. And just the the look on the actor did a good job. The look on his face right before Call Drogo dumps it all on him. He goes from being drunk and thinking, yeah, I'm going to get the respect to, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, and then a bunch of molten gold on his head. <laughs> and what a great way to die. For him, anyway. I don't want to die that way. No, that would be a terrible way to die, but it doesn't shed any blood, so it's okay to do an invasive Dothrak. That's right. And uh, it really sets up uh, Daenerys to kind of become her own woman. Yeah. Her brother can't control her anymore. Yeah. So, good number four. I like that. And he was a character... Yeah, number five. He was a character that we all wanted to see die in a bad way, too. It was quite uh, satisfying. Yes. All right. Moving on. My number four. I actually had to look up the name for this person because i forgot the name but it's doria doria give me a second you remember doria one of the handmaidens to khaleesi betrays her oh yeah yeah that's right with zaron zor zaxis zaron zor zaxis zaxis the guy with the alliterative name yeah (laughs) and the key around his neck with the big vault that has nothing in it anyway i love her death because a she just gets locked in that vault, yeah. which has got to be a super shitty way to die. You're just sitting in there in the dark with some guy who, I don't know. Will probably kill weirdo. you and eat you. Yeah, <laughs> it'll do something. You're not in a good situation, number one. And number two, I think it kind of showed us how Daenerys was ready to take control, be a little firmer, be a little more like, all right, you fuck on me. I fuck on you. Yes. And I'm going to fuck on you way harder than you fuck on me. Yeah, a little less justice and a little more mercy. Or, sorry, a little... <laughs> little other way around. Yeah, other way around. A little less mercy and a little more And justice. I think there was a little bit of a vengeance in there. Cause oh, wasn't, yeah, definitely. Wasn't Doria the one who kind of taught her how to please Khal Drogo? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think there was a little connection there. Definitely. And then Daenerys probably felt personally betrayed Very by this so. action. Yeah. So, good number four death, I thought. I like it. 
My number four, it's a bit of an obvious one, but God damn it, it gets me every time. Joffrey Baratheon's death at his own wedding mm-hmm. by the Queen of Thorns. His poisoning, the strangler. Well, now, hold on. In the eyes of gods, it was Tyrion. That's true. But so, we know. That's as, true. We know different. We know different. It was the Queen of Thorns. But uh, just the, the, the face. He has. There's a couple of things of just his face close-ups while he's strangling to death and his face turning purple and then blue and then his eyes becoming bloodshot. Like, just an awesome, awesome scene. Plus, it was great to see Joffrey die, the ultimate villain in that yeah. show. I mean, he was he was Ramsey before there was Ramsey. And, yeah, just awesome death scene. We were all ready to see him die, and I don't think anyone felt bad for him. No. Not at least the, the, not the way he died, not the fact that he died. Everyone was rooting for it. Except for Cersei. She was pretty much the only one that didn't want to see that happen. Yeah, well, fuck Cersei. Yeah. Tywin wanted. Tywin liked it, I think. Oh, yeah, because Tywin, I think he was looking at Joffrey and like, God, this is a huge problem. Yeah, this is going to be a challenge. <laughs> Tommen, a little bit more malleable, a little bit more susceptible to Tywin's influence. Yes, he just likes to stamp stuff and play with kittens. That's right. Okay, John Brent, what's your number three? Another kind of an obvious one, but it... Probably one of the best deaths ever on Game of Thrones, especially on the show. Oberyn Martell, Tyrion's second trial by combat that didn't go so good. That one was, that's on my honorable mentions. Yeah, Oberyn Martell's head getting smashed in by the mountain, an almost dead mountain, and him screaming, and you, he, victory was assured to him, and then it was just dashed away. Snatched. Very quickly. Smashed away. His yeah. skull was caved in by the mountain in his giant hands. I think we've discussed this scene before, but... I, it may have been on another list. Yeah. The <laughs> one that stuck with me was... The, the part that stuck with me about that scene is when he gets punched and his teeth go flying. Yeah, his teeth look like And the like sound Nazi of that rattling dice. on the pavement. <laughs> it sticks with me. Every time I think about that scene, I can't get that sound out of my head. Can't play Yahtzee anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> good, good number three. Thank you. My number three was Tywin Lannister. Mm. And I'll tell you why it's my number three. It's because Tywin's such a pivotal character throughout the show. I mean, he, he's calling the shots for a lot of the show, and he's making moves, and he's stirring the pot, and then he dies for someone who's so powerful and so rich and has just such a, a figure in the world of Westeros. The way he dies is just so inauspicious, and it's just, wow. Even the most powerful... I mean, this is, this is a message that George R. R. Martin has woven throughout the series, but the fact that Tywin Lannister dies on the shitter. Yeah. I mean, that's just, we, we've discussed it before, but, oh, man. It's right along the lines with, you know, the King Robert getting killed by a boar. Yeah. Just like, what the fuck? <laughs> this is not how great men should die. And the other part of that was, I, I kind of ties into it, but when Shay gets killed along yeah. with it, it's it's a real moment for Tyrion. It's it's like he's cutting all the ties he had to his past life. And yeah. he's starting over again. Well, definitely to his family. Yeah. To his family. Which which death do you think influenced the realm more? Tywin's death or Joffrey's death? It's got to be Tywin's death. Yeah. Even I mean, though he's... It, it almost left like a power vacuum that oh, Cersei one. and the Queen of Thorns and then the High Sparrow later on moved to fill. And that's how we end up with all the chaos in King's Landing. I can't believe that the High Sparrow would have been any sort of an issue if Tywin Lannister had been around. That's true. Yeah. So. Tywin would have seen to that real quick. Huge, huge power vacuum, and now the small folk in King's Landing and and Westeros are dealing with the fallout. Yes. Nice job, Tyrion. <laughs> All right, Lynn Thunder, what's your number two? My number two, The Red Wedding and Rob Stark. 
There's a lot of deaths at the Red Wedding. Yeah. I'll tell you why. After Ned Stark died, clearly that was a huge jaw dropper. Yeah, it kind of turned us all on an axis to just say, okay, expect anything now. Exactly. Even the heroes aren't safe. Mm -hmm. But even after Ned Stark's death and Rob Stark started running around and people are thinking, okay, he's the real good guy. It's not just Ned Stark. All right, you got us, George. You got us. Okay, (laughs) it's his son. All right, we're all rooting for him. Nope. 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 Wrong. (laughs) Wrong. Oh, man. Yeah, so when that happens... I mean, the, the, the reaction was huge. We don't, have, we don't have to talk about it. The small yeah. folk were distraught. People, Songs were made about it. People started hating the phrase and the Boltons real quick. Oh, Even yeah. more so, I guess, because they already did. Yeah. yeah. And that's the one that lets us know that, all right, no one is safe. No one. Who Expect all... anything. So, yeah, it was Rob died, Catelyn died, a couple of the Umbers, a couple of the um, Car Starks. Rob's, Rob's wife. wife. And she's so it's weird that she survived in the book. Rob's wife? Yeah. Oh, I didn't remember that. Yeah, because there's that whole scene where um, I think it's Jamie talks to her and her mom. Wow, I don't remember that. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. She survived in the books and may or may not have a child by him. Hmm. Because I remember she gets stabbed in the belly, so you'd think they'd take care of the child. Does she? Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. You're right. Yeah. And they, yeah, they did talk about she doesn't have a baby anymore, but she is still alive. Yeah. Lady Jane Westerling. All right, John Bryant. What's your number two? My number two, it's my favorite death. It's not the best, but it's my favorite. Sir Marion Trant being mm. killed by yeah. Arya Stark. Yep. He gets... Oh, Totally just destroyed by her. And she totally... Oh, my gosh. So she stags, stabs him in the gut like 10 times. Yeah. Takes out each of his eyes, stuffs a rag in his mouth, and just starts talking to him like, do you know who I am? Do yeah. You, do you remember Serial uh, Pharrell? And my father, I'm Arya Stark. And then just slits his throat after he got done trying to like beat up a little girl. and Yeah. yeah. He's a bad guy. No he, one felt bad for him. Yeah. So that was my favorite just like... Put your fist in the air and scream, yes, death. Team Aria. Yes, very much so. Exactly. All right, John Bryant. You're number one, death in Westeros. Now, this is much different than my number two because I didn't like this death. Okay. But it had to be done, and it was Hodar's. Yeah. Dude, there's just so much stuff that John you can Bryant, talk about. too soon. Time. Too soon. I can't discuss it. <laughs> I'm still healing. I'm sorry, but so... Did Bran go back in time, affect Willis, and then just so that he could be there that day to hold the door for him so he could escape? I mean, it creates a lot of questions. It's a lot. There's a lot I mean, of time, it's time type stuff there. It's time travel, and you're wondering, all right, would it have happened if Bran had, you know, maybe he's changing the whole timeline, you Yeah, know? and did the Three-Eyed Raven know this the whole time? Because... As soon as the, the so Bran got the mark on him, they knew the White Walkers were coming. As soon as the Three Eyed Raven saw that happening, that's when he was like, "All right, I got to go show you, uh, you know, little Willis." Yeah, exactly. <sighs> got to make sure it happens. That was a rough scene, and, and then it makes you wonder. All right, well, is Bran gonna go back? I mean, how much in the history of Westeros that we know so far, maybe has been created by Bran? I mean, because if he did the it once, Raven. yeah. I mean, yeah. if he did it once. I mean, who's to say that he hasn't? He won't do it in the future, which means that he'll have done it in the past, and it gets—it's a real mind fuck. 
Do you think that that ever just goes to Bran goes back in time, kills the Mad King somehow, and Rhaegar Targaryen, the you know really good prince that everyone loved, becomes king? Yeah. And none of this bad stuff ever happens. And they have to do it. I mean, I mean, who knows? Maybe he goes back and, then, and the, builds the wall, and everyone remembers Bran the Builder when in fact yeah. it was just. Bran the fucking cripple. There is a theory out there that there's just been a, he's like the same Bran that's been around for a bunch of different like generations and stuff. Right. Yeah. And there's also this theory that he the the three eyed raven is Bran because you never see the three eyed right. raven walk except for in the green dreams. Exactly. He's just sitting in that tree, which is presumably what a crippled person would do. Exactly. And yeah, you just wonder. All right, maybe Bran is just some sort of time-traveling entity who does whatever he needs to do to make sure stuff works out. Yeah, so Hodar's death really just gives us this huge can, a case of worms to look into and just say, what the fuck's going to happen now? Exactly. So that's why it's another one of those, I didn't like the death. I didn't want to see Hodar. I know no, it. No, I wanted Hodar to become king. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's just... Yeah, I mean, it. Hodar, the fabric man. of our reality here in Westeros, small folk, has come undone. Really has. Exactly. All right, Lynn Thunder, what's your number one death? My number one death. Not a very important death. Okay. But one that I really one, then. I really enjoyed. Is Lysa Aaron getting thrown out the moon door by Littlefinger. You misogynist pig. I, I love it. <laughs> and, he, and I love it because she's clearly crazy. Oh, yeah. She just threatened to throw her niece out the door. Madly in love with Peter Baelish. Who wouldn't be? And I love the line he says. It's like, oh, I've only ever loved one woman. She's like, oh, it's me. And he leans in very closely. Your sister. Your sister. Then boom, <laughs> out the moon door. And the look on her face, just like, oh, like you can tell she's utterly crushed and Literally. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I love that death. I, I love anything to do with Littlefinger, obviously. He's my favorite character. Yep. And, boy, just seeing him throw her out the moon door, I mean... Has Peter killed anyone else on the show that we know? I mean, I, I think mean, he's arranged several oh, deaths. Yeah, definitely. But that's the first time he ever took it into his own hands, I think. Yeah, personally. Kind of a bitch move to kill a woman. Yeah, well, I mean, he is, he's not a very big man. That's true. He's, he's not. He's good with his mind, not with his uh, I think I'm a, strength. I'm starting to understand why you're such a big Peter Baelish fan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's break it down. My top five were Virtus Egan by Braun. Uh, number four, Joffrey Baratheon. Number three... Oberyn Martell getting his head smashed, smashed by the mountain who rides. Sir Marin Trant, the pederast, got killed by Arya Stark. And then Hodar by Bran? Question mark? Exactly. Yeah. Who knows? My top five. Number five, Viserys Targaryen with his golden crown. Number four, Doria, the personal betrayer to Khaleesi. Uh, number three, Tywin Lannister with his inauspicious death on the shitter. Number two, Rob Stark showing us that no one is safe. Number one, Lysa Aaron, you crazy bitch. Uh, a couple honorable mentions. Uh, I had Oberyn Martell on that list because how can you not? Yeah. Other honorable mentions, Egret. Yep. Kind of a heartbreaking death. I mean, Jon Snow. Jon Snow's looking at her. She's looking at him, and you're like, oh, God, what's going to happen? And then fucking Ollie. Fucking Ollie, like, man. With his toy, cross, or toy bow and arrow set. It's kind of funny that Ollie kills both Egret and Jon Snow. Mm-hmm. Kind of a badass for a little kid. Nah, kind of, but he yeah. did now. Exactly. He hung. Punching above your weight, Ollie. <laughs> Another honorable mention, the Hound. Yeah, that, that was, I that thought about death. putting that death on there, but that was one that actually just, I liked it, but I didn't like it because I wanted Arya to put him out of his misery. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I wanted the Hound and Arya to be like a little team running around like, we're the Hound and Arya. Well, they were for a little Maybe bit. Maybe they can get their own spinoff. I don't know. But then Brian kicked his ass. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I would have liked to see. I, don't I, like I understand it. Like, it totally says something about Arya Stark that she didn't do it. Mm-hmm. But I would have liked to think she did. Yeah. Ha- would have. So. I mean, and it, him begging her to do it. That, that was yeah. another death I had to take some time and heal from. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, last one on my honorable mention, Mance Raider. Because I thought it was... I know he doesn't die in the books, but on the, in the show, his death scene is just it's so well-filmed. And that actor did a fantastic job of just conveying the sheer terror that Mance Raider clearly has about being burned to death. Yeah. And then Jon Snow putting him out of his misery. Kind of stand up to Stannis and the Red Woman, who had just literally saved his ass. Yep. I, I thought that was a... That was a good death. It Maybe was. a bad death, but a good death. Anyway, another honorable mention... Lady of the Dire Wolf. That was mm, sad. Yeah, that was sad. Fun fact, Sophia Turner, who plays Sansa, Sansa Stark, adopted that dog Aww. and owns her in real life. And then killed her. No, <laughs> she still has her happy and healthy. But could you imagine like going over to Sophia Turner's house and just see her open the door with a fucking dire wolf right there? Well, I mean, I'd be happy just to go to Sophia Turner's house in general, but yeah. But what if there's a dire wolf there? That'd be pretty cool, I'd too. I'd be more excited about the dire wolf. <laughs> I'd be equally excited for both of them, honestly. <laughs> Any more honorable mentions? I mean, we could go on and on, but we really could. this segment has to end. It does. That's right. And we need to turn our attention, John Bryant, to our multi-part series, The Wars of the Roses. To England? To England. Who's that then? I don't know. Must be a king. Why? He hasn't got shit all over him. I'm Arthur, King of the Britain. King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. That is the result of his majesty's government. Okay, so when we left off last time, King Edward had received a midnight message warning him that the Marquis of Montague, his erstwhile ally, or so he thought, had planned to betray and capture him, and so he's forced to flee in the middle of the night to the continent and leave England. Meanwhile, the Earl of Warwick and Queen Margaret had taken London and released King Henry and put him back on the throne. What a twist. This came as a huge shock to everyone. Remember, Edward is the young, tall, handsome, charismatic king who's never lost a battle and had been able to beat back many attempts by Queen Margaret to retake the throne earlier. In fact, a Burgundian nobleman said, Less than a fortnight before, King Edward would have been astounded if anyone had said to him, The Earl of Warwick will drive you out of England and make himself her master in eleven days. What excuse could he find after suffering this great loss through his own fault, except to say, I didn't think that such a thing could possibly happen. It really is, it's it's a true underdog story. No one had given Queen Margaret and the Earl of Warwick a shot, and yet, without even fighting a battle, they had gotten King Edward to run away and put King Henry back on the throne. Now, when Warwick and Margaret marched into London, the first thing they did, of course, is go straight to the Tower of London and free King Henry. They went to the Tower of London, where King Henry was imprisoned by King Edward's commandment, 
and there took him from his keepers, which was not worshipfully arrayed as a prince, and not so cleanly kept as should seem such a prince. They had him out, and new arrayed him, and did him great reverence, and brought him to the palace of Westminster, and so he was restored to the crown again. Henry's back on top. That's right. He's back on top, and he's gone from zero to hero. I mean, it sounds from that quote that he's kept in pretty poor condition in the cells of the Tower of London, and now he's back on the throne. Quite a reversal of fortune. And Henry knows who he owns this reversal to. He owes it to the Earl of Warwick. And so he makes him Lord Lieutenant to the King. One more title for the Earl of Warwick, who, again, many people had thought was the most powerful man in England. However, despite all this, Warwick is in a very precarious situation. Remember, his new allies were his enemies up until a few months ago, and they still hate him. You know, the Duke of Somerset lost his father to the Neville family, and the Duke of Exeter personally had it in for Warwick because Warwick had taken his job as Lord Admiral of the Navy. And remember, the Duke of Exeter had tried to ambush and kill the Earl of Warwick on the Love Day Parade. So there's no love lost there. Moreover, Warwick knows that King Edward is down, but he's not out. Remember, he's at large. And his wife, Elizabeth Woodville, had just given birth to Edward's first son. So Edward needs to come back in order to see his family, number one, and two, get his throne back so he can give it to his son. He's, it's been made personal now for King Edward. So Warwick knows that there's going to be a reckoning coming one way or another, either from his new allies or from his new enemies. Now, the other big betrayer in this whole debacle, remember, Clarence, King Edward's younger brother, has really screwed himself over, if you think about it. So he, he went from being the king's younger brother, next in line to inherit the throne if King Edward doesn't have any kids, and he had gotten into this thinking that he was going to end up on the throne. But now King Henry's on the throne, and he's just some lesser nobleman. He's not related to the king anymore, and he's having to give up a lot of his lands and titles to Lancastrian nobles, because these are lands and titles that he had gotten when the Yorkists took over. So all of a sudden, he has lost most of his power, and he's almost a nobody now. He, he done screwed up. <laughs> yeah. So he's not too happy with the Earl of Warwick, because the Earl of Warwick had talked him into this whole thing telling him that he was going to be king, and now he's no one. So Warwick has really, really painted himself into a corner. So even though King Henry and Queen Margaret are back in power, they're kind of on shaky ground. The alliance that they have used to get themselves back in power is shaky at best. And to reflect this, there's massive unrest in the country amongst the small folk. There's rioting in London, and there's several acts of arson and rape and murder. This is all bad for business, and the merchants of London are not happy. Remember, Queen Margaret's Achilles heel almost, it seems to have been, is that the fact that the people in London don't like her. <laughs> so again, she's back in power, and now things are bad in London, and the merchants are thinking, God damn it, Queen Margaret. <laughs> she's back. <laughs> Jesus. But no matter how bad things were in England... King Edward is doing worse in Holland. He had to go to Holland, and when he sailed from England, 
he could only take three tiny ships with him. Remember, he had to leave several, several people behind because there just wasn't room for them on the ships. That's how quickly he had to leave. And in fact, he's only got the clothes on his back, and by the time he gets to Holland, he doesn't even have those clothes, because in order to pay the ship's captain to bring him over, he had to give him his fur cloak and promise to pay him more when he was back in power. <laughs> he's at the end of his rope. Now, at this time, Holland was a part of Burgundy. And remember, Burgundy is that enemy of France. And so Edward is put up there in Burgundy, along with his little brother, Richard. Now, the ruler of Burgundy doesn't quite know what to do with King Edward. Throughout this whole Wars of the Roses thing that's been going on, he's been trying to keep each side happy with Burgundy, kind of play both sides, because England is a huge trading partner with Burgundy, and Burgundy knows that, okay, look, we're not so great with France. France wants to get rid of us. We better make sure that England's not going to ally with France. And so you remember uh, they had actually fought together against France in that Hundred Years' War that was going on way at the start of all this. So the Duke of Burgundy doesn't quite know what to make of the situation. He doesn't want to make the, the Lancasters mad because they're in power in England. But he also doesn't want to make Edward mad in case Edward goes back and gets the job back, gets back in power. Remember, the throne's been changing hands several times almost every year, so he's not ready to discount anyone yet. But he is kind of mad that he's in this tough position, and he knows that King Edward is the one who put him in this tough position by coming over to him. So he's not too happy with Edward. So what he decides to do is kind of make Edward a prisoner, but make him a prisoner in style. Kind of puts him under house arrest, but in one of the nicest houses in Europe. Burgundy is one of the wealthiest nations in Europe at this time. Edward is... He's seen things that he's never thought he could see before. And he used to be a king. That's how rich they are. So They Hotel California'd him. Exactly. Gotcha. So he puts him up in nice digs, but he refuses to actually see Edward and give him an audience or let him leave. So Edward gets kind of stuck. What breaks this deadlock is that the king of France decides to call in his favors. Remember, when this whole thing gets started, he's the one who put it in motion. He's the one who took an er the Earl of Warwick and said, you're going to ally with Queen Margaret, you're going to go back, put King Henry on the throne, and then you're going to fight with me against Burgundy. So he calls in that favor. But the thing is, he, he does this only a couple months after King Henry's back on the throne. The hustle and bustle and all the chaos that had resulted from that still hasn't died down. He, he's a little trigger-happy with his favors. So he declares war on Burgundy, and a few months later, he gets the Earl of Warwick to talk to King Henry, Queen Margaret, and England declares war on Burgundy too. This has broken the camel's back for the Duke so, of Burgundy. So it's England, France, and who else against? Just them against Burgundy. Burgundy, okay. Yeah. So the Duke of Burgundy looks at this and he says, all right, I need a game changer can't fight both England and France, he decides to finally see King Edward. So King Edward goes and talks with him, and they hammer out an agreement. The Duke of Burgundy is not going to publicly support King Edward, just in case this whole thing falls through. But he gives him money, he gives him troops, and he gives him ships. Basically, he gives King Edward everything he needs to go home and try to get his throne back. So is he sending the war away, or is he... 
you know, just taking it off of his turf or is he really supporting this guy? Well, he doesn't want to be seen to do it publicly in case it fails. But what he really wants to do is get England out of the war against him. He can't fight France and England. Gotcha. So he's thinking, okay, if I get King Edward back on the throne. Remember, King Edward had always kind of liked Burgundy. And the reason that he did is because the merchants in London had did a lot of their trade with Burgundy. Mm-hmm. And the Yorkists have always kind of stood for the merchants of London. The decision between who are we going to support, France or Burgundy, King Edward has always leaned towards supporting Burgundy. And remember, Warwick leaning towards France because the king of France had kind of said, all right, if you do this for me, maybe there's something in it for you. Hmm. This larger political scheme has all of a sudden enveloped the Wars of the Roses in England. And it's I always kind of think of the Duke of Burgundy as like that, that merchant that was hosting the Targaryens, Viserys and Daenerys at the very beginning. Uh, what's uh, the uh, Ilario or something? Yeah. The really rich merchant that puts him puts him up but doesn't really do anything with them. And he doesn't want gives to him do... the dragon gives Khaleesi the dragon eggs. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he just wants he's playing both sides. He wants to be the in, cheese cheesemonger. Exactly. <laughs> he wants to be in good with no matter who's gonna be in power. So he's, he's trying to curry favor with everyone. Duke of Burgundy's kind kinda doing this until his hand is forced and he has to pick a side. Okay. So Edward's now got an army, he's got money, and he's got ships. Edward decides to come home. So Edward lands in the north of England with only about five hundred troops. It's a tiny army. It's a small force, and so what he does is he moves south towards his old estates in York. And he's hiding in plain sight, because he knows that there's armies around there, and he knows that they're much bigger than his, and he, he doesn't have a shot. So what he does is he, has, is he moves south, he has his troops yell, King Henry! King Henry! To kind of make it appear like there's some sort of smaller force that's supporting King Henry, and they, can, and they manage to actually avoid a few different battles that they could have fought. And as he's moving south... Towards his estates, he's gathering more and more supporters. His army's getting bigger. Eventually, after about a month of this, ducking and dodging, floating like a butterfly, he decides it's time to sting like a bee. He marches out, and he decides that he's going to confront Warwick. Because Warwick's leading an army in this area. Warwick decides to hole up in a castle and wait for reinforcements. And who's leading those reinforcements? Clarence. (laughs) Edward's his little younger bro- brother. Edward's little brother. <laughs> now, Edward's not stupid, though. Before he set out for all this, he had been writing letters, sending secret messages, trying to build up his power base back in England. And one of the people he had been writing letters to was Clarence, his younger brother. Baby bro. Yeah. Clarence is kind of like Fredo in The Godfather. Okay. You know? He just, he just wants to be good at something. <laughs> he just wants to be appreciated, Mikey. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Edward kind of pulls a Michael Corleone and writes some letters saying, look, I forgive you. I got a job for you. You're back in the family. <laughs> I got a job for you. So Clarence has about 4,000 troops with him, and he's marching out to reinforce Warwick. And when he gets there, he and Edward meet. It's two brothers reuniting the families back together. How did Warwick not see this one coming? Uh, just not a very smart guy, I guess. I guess, yeah. Yeah. I guess it's was... kind of the same thing that happened with uh, Edward beforehand when he's marching with Montague, who is the Earl of Warwick's brother, yeah. <laughs> and then Montague betrays him. And it's kind of like uh, I, it's kind of like when the Tullys declared for Rob. It's like, well, 
the crown expected them to do one thing, but family drove them to do another. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I get it. Blood is thicker than water. Yep. Now King Edward's got a bigger army, but what's even more important is he has a clear path down to London. So he says to Yo, you can keep this castle. He heads down to London. And Henry's in London? Henry's in London. Nice. And what's kind of funny is that the Archbishop of London, who is a Neville, family member of Warwick, he actually has King Henry not do like a walk of atonement, but like walk the city streets to kind of rally support. He thinks this is going to rally support. Go out and wave. But remember, King Henry's crazy, and he's <laughs> old and decrepit at this point. Like he's he's not someone who's going to inspire people. <laughs> he's not the tall, handsome, charismatic King Edward. He's the simple, timorous, sickly King Henry. Oh, jeez. So he's walking around the city streets. Everyone's looking at him like, oh, Jesus. So when King Edward shows up, they throw open the doors and they say, welcome back, welcome back, man. <laughs> he's up there. He's up there. <laughs> so now King Edward has London. He's got an army and he's got King Henry. He's sitting pretty. He's looking good. But Edward, being the decisive, quick person that he is, he doesn't rest on his laurels. Once he has London and King Henry... He marches out immediately, and he's going to, again, try to fight Warwick. And Warwick has to fight now. There's no sitting back. He's lost London. He's lost his king. He's got to fight. He's got to change the game. Otherwise, he's just going to sit there and lose. So they meet at a place called Barnet. And this battle shows that sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. (laughs) You see, Warwick had taken up a position on a cliff over a hedge. He, he had the high ground. It was very defensible. Uh, you know, really couldn't be assaulted. And Edward kind of approaches this position at night. And what he does is he has his army camp extremely close on the low ground of, of, of this position under cover of night. And Warwick knows he's there. So Warwick has his cannons and his archers and everything bombard King Edward's army. At least that's what he thinks. What he doesn't realize is that King Edward has actually marched up so close and camped so close to his position that he's overshooting the army. So he's wasting all of his ammo, you know, shooting at an army that he thinks is about, you know, 500 yards further away than it actually is. Oh, okay. So he's he's shooting all of his he's shooting his load and he's missing. And if, also, I heard this the other day. A lot of times when that stuff happens, the other side just goes and picks up all those arrows and shoots yep. them right back. <laughs> He's already screwing up. Now, the following morning is a very foggy morning. That's important to remember. Very tough to see in this situation. Okay, London fog. That's right. Edward has his army arrayed in sort of three groups. And and this is standard at the time. Warwick has his own army arrayed in three groups. And they're, they're three in a line, so right next to each other. You've got a center, a left, and a right. Standard practice at this time. Edward, of course, leads the center. Warwick is leading his center. But the problem is, is that it's so foggy and they can't see that they're not lined up opposite each other just right. Like, the centers aren't lined up across from each other. The right's not lined up across each other. So their right's hitting their left. Exactly. So they're off by one. So on Warwick's side, you've got the left, the center, and the right. And on King Edward's side, you've got the left, the center, and the right. Except Warwick's center is lined up across from... Edward's left, and Edward's center is lined up across from Warwick's right. So you've got two groups on each side of the army that aren't facing anyone, and they don't know this because they can't see because of the fog. (laughs) 
And the guys that don't see anyone in front of them aren't going to be like, hey, there's no one in front of us kill, trying to kill us yet. Let's <laughs> Exactly. A little bit of confusion. Nevertheless, Edward decides to assault. Betwixt four and five of the clock in the morning, he committed his quarrel and cause to Almighty God, advanced banners, did blow up trumpets, and set upon them first with shot, and then, and soon, they joined and came to hand strokes. Now, hand strokes means hand-to-hand combat. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what happens is because they're not aligned perfectly, the Earl of Warwick's left, who is, again, not across from anyone, they sort of fold up and attack Edward's left. And they drive them back. And they're led by a guy named the Earl of Oxford. And this is where the luck comes in. Because after the Earl of Oxford group attacks this left of King Edward and beats them and drives them back, they chase them down and they get rid of them. And then they decide to head back and flank King Edward. But remember, it's very foggy. People can't see very well. And this is what happens. But it happened so that the Earl of Oxford's men had upon them their lord's livery, both before and behind, which was a star with streams, which was much like King Edward's livery, with sun and streams. And the mist was so thick that a man might not perfectly judge one thing from another. So the Earl of Warwick's men shot and fought against the Earl of Oxford's men, thinking and supposing that they had been King Edward's men. And anon the Earl of Oxford and his men cried, Treason! Treason! and fled away from the field with 800 men. Whoops. So what happens is the Earl of Oxford's men coming back to deliver the coup de grace on King Edward and hand him his first loss in a battle get mistaken for King Edward's men by the Earl of Warwick's men. They get shot at by their own side because the mist is so thick and because since it just happens to be the Earl of Oxford and his sign looks so much like King Edward's sign that they just, there's a flub. They screw up. Why it's important to know your sigils. Exactly. <laughs> this is this is where the luck comes in. If it hadn't been Foggy, if it hadn't been the Earl of Oxford leading that group, King Edward would have definitely lost that battle. And in fact, he probably could have been killed at that point because he had people coming at him from both in front and behind. But as it happens, the Earl of Oxford men start to free, start to flee. And as as they're fleeing, they're fleeing towards the Earl of Warwick's men. And as they get close and fleeing screen treason, the Earl of Warwick's men see this, and they think, oh god, King Edward's beating us, and someone has betrayed us. <laughs> so they all run away. They think that they've, you know, been beaten. When they haven't, they have the upper hand. So King Edward really pulls one out of his ass here. What happens is that the Earl of Warwick's men run away. Earl of Warwick tries to, t- tries to run away, but was trapped in a wood where there was no way forth. And one of King Edward's men had espied him, and one came upon him and killed him and despoiled him. The Earl of Warwick, the most powerful man, the kingmaker, is killed by a common soldier. What was that? Dispose of him? Despoiled? Despoiled him? Does that just mean like kind of desecrated his body in some way? Like I think that means like steal his armor and all his nice clothes and stuff. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So he's uh he, he ain't good no more. He did. Yeah. Adding insult to injury there. He didn't work it. He did. Exactly. This is a huge victory. King Edward, you know, this is his first battle that he's fought since he came back. 
and it's a huge success. And once it kind of comes out, people don't see it as luck. They see it as God's blessing. Oh, yeah. You know, God personally intervened in this battle to make sure King Edward won because he wants King Edward on the throne. It's not just a huge military victory for King Edward. It's a huge PR victory, too. And he's killed his biggest betrayer. However, it's not over. Because the Lancastrians, Queen Margaret, and some of her biggest supporters, like the Duke of Somerset, are still running around in Western England. And they are of a different opinion. They see this as getting rid of their weakness. The Earl of Warwick, you know, they didn't know. Maybe he was going to betray them or something. They got rid of the weak. And then they're left with the strong. The Earl of Warwick is gone. But it's Margaret and Somerset in Western England. They have their own army. It's a much better army with a much better commander. Remember, the Earl of Warwick had always been a kind of a crappy land commander. Mm-hmm. Not very good. King Edward... Ever decisive, marches to meet them, fresh off his victory over Warwick. And he's going to decide, once and for all, who will rule England. Nice. That's where we leave off today, small folk. All right, John Bryant, another episode in the books. That's episode seven. That's right. You know, there's only four episodes left in this uh, season of Game of Thrones. That's right. John Bryant, do you think we're going to hit ten episodes of this podcast? Uh, Most likely. Eventually. I mean, we'll see. <laughs> maybe. Who yeah. knows? Maybe yeah. if we got some donations. Yeah, we could get some donations, or uh, maybe uh, someone can enter the logo contest. That's right. Become a bannerman. Exactly. If we had a bannerman, maybe we could get shit done around here. Yeah, we d- we have gone over 100 downloads, which is cool. Over 150. Oh, really? I haven't checked it lately. It's like, like 160-something. God damn. I know. It must be a bunch of robots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shh. Those are my I swear that only like 130 of those are my downloads. (laughs) No, but it's it's nice to see the downloads. It's nice to know that we're reaching the small folks. And nice to know that small folk are getting some of the culture, context of Westeros. That's right. And we're going to continue our mission uh, with our new grant from the Hodor Memorial Foundation. Hodor. Hodor. So stick around, small folk. Stay tuned. You're our talker. Listening to talkers makes me thirsty. I understand that if any more words come pouring out your cunt mouth, I'm going to have to eat every fucking chicken in this room. If you think this has a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention. I found him surprisingly beautiful in a brutal, horribly uncomfortable sort of way. 